One purchased, one donated. That's the promise of Bombas, whose incredibly comfy socks, tees, and underwear go not only to you when you buy them, but also to people facing homelessness. So when you put on that buttery soft tea or realize you've developed a habit of reaching for Bomba socks, which I do, over every other pair in the drawer, you'll know that someone in need is having that same feeling. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash hard things and use code hard things for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, I have a surprise to tell you, honey. I booked us an Airbnb at the Thousand Islands with more space and privacy. And we get to opt into my family. So near family, but not with family. Yes. You solved family near, but not with. (laughs) Thank you, Airbnb. (laughs) Have you ever thought about renting your place out? Like when you go away like that? Yeah, I have. There's some big events coming up in LA in the near future that I'm very excited that possibly we're going to do that for sure. When you really think about it, babe, it really is the perfect way to make some extra money when we're away from LA. When you're just living somewhere, it's easy to forget that the place you live in is actually a travel destination others want to visit. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Airbnb.com slash host. Sister, you should rent your house too. You stopped asking directions to places they Welcome to We Can Do Hard Things. We're going to jump right in today because we have with us the incredible Roxanne Gay. Roxanne Gay is the author of several incredible books, including Aiti, An Untamed State, New York Times bestsellers, Bad Feminist, and Hunger, and the national bestseller, difficult women. Her writing appears in Best American Mystery Stories, Best American Short Stories. She is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and you've probably read her opinion pieces, which have circulated the planet again and again and again. She also has a newsletter, The Audacity. Her latest book, Opinions, is available now. Hello, Roxanne Gay. How the hell are you? I am pretty good, Glennon Doyle. Um, you know, can't complain. Or actually, I can. But oh, I won't you better. I recognize that my complaints are ridiculous. <laughs> I disagree. I'm so glad you brought that up off the bat because I love your love of complaining. I find it liberatory. Uh, it's so important. I got it from my mother. I come by it so honestly. And <laughs> I, I think it's healthy when you keep it bottled up then you eventually take out your frustrations on other people. But if within reason you complain freely, you know, it's healthy. You keep the blood system flowing. Let's do that today. Let's keep the blood (laughs) system flowing. And also we're airing this a couple days before Thanksgiving. So we feel like we could honor Thanksgiving by complaining a lot. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's the season. It's the season, (laughs) isn't it? So Abby and I were laughing when we were thinking about this interview because do you remember when we all went out to dinner, you and me I do. and Abby and Debbie, when we just, we were deciding on a place to meet for our first double date in real life. And Abby mm-hmm. and I just assumed we think of you and Debbie as like very cool. So we thought that you lived in LA. Okay. Like LA, LA, we don't live in LA, LA because that is too much. 
It's just yeah, it's too cool. It's too cool. It's too like in the midst. Like it makes me feel swallowed up. I can't. So we live like 45 minutes to an hour outside of LA. You guys thought that we were cool and lived in LA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we sure did. I was like, surely they live in uh, Silver Lake or Los Feliz. Yeah. And uh, nope. Nope. <laughs> Imagine my surprise. So Pod Squad, we uh, agreed to meet at a restaurant an hour away, like all the mm-hmm. way into LA. And we got halfway through dinner before we realized we actually live seven minutes from each other and we had all <laughs> traveled an hour. <laughs> yes, you know, which is such an LA story. Really <laughs> you is. get on the freeways without thinking and then you realize, oh wait, we actually all live in the same amazing place. Yeah. Far, far from here. Mm. It also feels like a metaphor for so much. Like we do so much effort to try to be like, this is what the other person wants. And we put all this effort in and we're like, oh shit, we could have just showed up by ourselves where we mm-hmm. where we actually live. Yeah, we were neighbors. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm thinking about that. Do you feel like in order to be who you are in the world, which, so let me just real quick, I'll tell you who you are in the world. <laughs> oh, please. So I'm excited. I'm going to take notes. You know, it's just like, you're a person who observes culture and then mm-hmm. tells us about it. Not so that we can think like you, which I appreciate very much. It's like, I don't think you tell us what to think, but you do show us a path of how to think things through. Do you feel like you have, in order to be that kind of cultural critic or prophetic type voice, that you do have to be a little bit on the outside? Have you felt like an outsider looking in? I have always felt that way. So I just wonder, does it take distance Mm. to see things clearly? Yes and no. I think sometimes it does take distance and sometimes you need to be right up on something to see it clearly. Uh, But I've always felt like I was on the outside looking in, Mm -hmm. partly because I was, (laughs) you know, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and there are not a lot of people from Nebraska and especially not a lot of Haitian Americans or black women. I mean, there are, there's a significant black community in Omaha relative to the size of the state, but it's not the first state that people think of when they think of, you know, a Mecca for black people. And so I felt like I was always learning about and reading about culture and cool things from a very removed distance. And then as an adult, I taught for most of my career in really rural places And so, again, I was on the outside looking in. And I think that gives you a certain perspective on the world. And that's definitely, for the most part, how I approach my cultural criticism. Uh, And, you know, when I'm closer to something, when I'm actively engaged with something that I want to critique, my approach is fairly similar, but I do try to acknowledge I'm actually all the way into this. Mm. And, you know, my perspective is, in fact, different here. So where do you feel into it? Like, where do you not feel distance, but you feel like, oh, I am of this. I am of this group. I am in this thing. I think mostly when I'm writing about fatness. Mm. Also when I'm writing about books, because I've always found everything I could possibly need in books. And I write, of course. And so I feel a kinship with book people. And I feel like this is my community. And when I'm writing about fatness and just the challenges of living in a human body, the older I get and the wiser, hopefully, I get, the more I recognize that 
it's just hard to be human mm-hmm. and it's hard to live in a body. And if that body is presents as female, you know, the challenges increase. And to be able to connect with people on that level and to have people say, you know what, uh, that book really resonated for me is very meaningful. Mm-hmm. So you are an early person on the interwebs, these interwebs mm. that we all live <laughs> on now. And you found it as a place to make community and feel like mm-hmm. your voice could be heard. And you found power and connection and community there, I'm assuming, right? I think so. And when you started, you felt like it was a good place. <laughs> I did. Okay. What is it now? <laughs> um, uh, now it's a hellscape. Okay. It's terrible. I hate the internet. Mm-hmm. I don't hate the internet, I should say. I hate certain social media platforms and how they've deteriorated. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I would say that because mm-hmm. I was on Twitter from very early on. I think I've been on Twitter for 17 or 18 years. And when I first joined, it was because I was going to graduate school in Houghton, Michigan, and I was living in a town adjacent that had 4,000 people in it. So like, where are you going to go to f- talk about things mm-hmm. other than hockey and deer? And <laughs> Twitter was that place for me. And it used to be wonderful, even when there were trolls, and there are always going to be trolls no matter where you are, you still could connect with people mm-hmm. and you could see people that you admire from a distance and you felt like you had some proximity to them. And I think for many of us, that was really appealing. And then I became one of those people to whom people would like proximity. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting and unanticipated. But now it doesn't matter what you say or do. People love to police one another and criticize like the level of expectation for like moral purity is so unachievable. Mm-hmm. And I find that I make the most innocuous statements and am immediately like criticized for hours, if not days or weeks. Mm-hmm. Things that I think, oh, this is like kind of obvious. This is you know, table stakes stuff. And then people are like, oh my God, you're representing oppression. And it it, it just always shocks the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, wow, did not see that one coming. Mm-hmm. Okay, I take your critique. Thank you. <laughs> I don't really take the critique, but. I know you don't. <laughs> we, we know you don't. But why do you think this? What is your analysis of why it's gotten so much worse? It seems to be at a crescendo right now. I'm not sure. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. I think part of it is control. Mm -hmm. And we live in a world with profound injustices, especially now. And we're bearing witness to them on a daily basis. And we have so little control. We can't do anything to stop it. We can agitate. We can call our senators and our Congress people. We can donate money. We can donate our time and energy. We can sign letters and petitions, but we can't save lives necessarily doing those things. But what we can do is look for those weaknesses in each other. Mm. And I think oftentimes we would mistake exploiting those weaknesses for 
doing important work. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when like collectively we lost the plot, but we have lost the plot. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? I really feel like I'm at, I'm, it's not even maybe a good decision Mm -hmm. as a person who hosts, like I, I, in some ways I'm like a host of a community online. And so um, it almost feels lately like inviting people I love to a dangerous place to hang out. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I'm struggling with. It's what kind of spaces do I want to curate? And frankly, the people who created these social media platforms should have thought about that. Mm-hmm. They were like, I'm going to build a big, beautiful garden, but I'm not going to weed it. Mm-hmm. And we have responsibility for the communities that we convene, whether they're intentional or unintentional. And I don't really want to sort of have my presence on Twitter, for example, make people feel like that's an endorsement of the space anymore. And so I'm struggling with it because I really do, or I did love Twitter before it just became whatever it is now, but I'm not getting any sort of pleasure from it at all. Mm -hmm. When I go on there, I'm just bracing myself for like, what did I do wrong today? Mm -hmm. And who did I piss off today? And that's actually not what all at all, what like my day-to-day life is. Mm -hmm. I I encounter all kinds of people all day, every day and never have any unpleasant interactions. Even if there's disagreement and debate and discussion, it's totally normal. And then people get in front of a screen and everything changes. Yeah. My therapist said something to me really recently that was about, you know, when you said you're always getting on to brace yourself for who's Mm -hmm. mad at you for the new thing. I'm in recovery from eating disorders. And and one of the things is this like attempt to not be human. They call it being unimpeachable Uh inside of anorexia or, or a lot of different disorders. This idea of I can just make myself unimpeachable. And Uh my therapist said, this social media is the absolute worst place for you to be in a recovery from trying to become unimpeachable because in order to be a public person on social media right now, that's all you're trying to do. Yes. Just be unimpeachable, just to be a robot. Yeah. And, you know, I've spent most of my adult life for one reason or another, trying to be perfect, Mm -hmm. trying to make sure that I do everything so well Mm -hmm. and in ways that cannot be critiqued, not because I can't handle criticism, but because I just have always felt like I have to. I'm not good enough unless I'm perfect, unless I give people everything they could possibly want, unless I actually anticipate what they could want and preempt (laughs) by like being extraordinarily generous when it wasn't called for. Mm -hmm. And so to now be in a position where it's like, okay, I'm still trying to handle all of that and work through it in therapy, which mm-hmm. shout out therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really hard to also be on social media where that sort of armor you build around yourself to be perfect is being chipped away at all the time and not in productive ways, because it's not that I want to live in an echo chamber and that I don't want to receive critique. Once I get through my feelings, I absolutely do consider critiques that are offered in good faith. Mm-hmm. and think, well, what can I take from this that maybe I'm not doing well or that I could do differently or I could do better? And I do try to shift, to change, to evolve. But, you know, when it's just this barrage of 
bad faith engagement. Mm -hmm. It just undermines everything. And then I'm completely crushed. And then my wife, who is online, but not capital O online, is Mm -hmm. like, why are you still there? It makes you unhappy Mm -hmm. all the time. And she's right. And I'm starting to listen to her. (laughs) I mean, I always listen to her. Are you in that space where you're imagining your life not online? Like, are you considering Mm -hmm. it? Yeah, me too. Oh, I'm more than considering it. Like, I mean, I'll be on blue sky and threads because right now they're in those nascent days where people don't have yet the capacity to be just extraordinarily evil on them. Mm -hmm. But I'm not long for Twitter. Mm -hmm. I just, every single day, it's just something else. And I just find myself constantly censoring myself I'm not even being myself anymore on that platform. And I think like many writers, we have this fear that if we're not on social media, we won't sell books. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that I haven't sold any books through Twitter for my current book. There's no, I mean, there's just no <laughs> translation between social media followings and book sales. That's not how any of it works. And um, I just have to trust that my career will survive not being on social media. Tanahasi seems to be doing fine. So mm-hmm. I think if he can do it, I can do it. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. It's true. You don't go somewhere new and exotic just to be there. You go to do things be it a historical walking tour, zip lining through the trees, or guided tours through museums. Like the hassle-free self-guided audio tour our family took through Versailles. If you're planning a trip and really want to make the most out of your time, I recommend you check out Viator. They have over 300,000 bookable experiences from simple tours to extreme adventures. And there's something for everyone in over 190 countries. Thrill rides, spooky ghost tours, secret food guides, exploration off the beaten path. It's all there, along with millions of real traveler reviews, 24-7 customer service, various payment options, and flexibility and support with free cancellation. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300 thousand travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Can we talk about something fun since we're going to quit the internet? Okay. I don't know if this is true, but I was listening to a podcast with you on it. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's possible that you're in the middle of writing an essay about something about which Abby and I have recently become obsessed. Is it possible that you're interested in in writing about Naked Attraction, the show right now? That's true. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Okay. Can we just talk about it for a few minutes? Oh my God. When did you first learn about Naked Attraction? So my friend Shannon Watts comes back from to her house because her dog sitter had been at her house for three days. So she turns on Netflix and it says you recently watched. Mm-hmm. So her dog sitter has been watching the show called Naked Attraction. <laughs> so she turns it on because why not? What the hell? And her mind, as you know, what happens when you watch the show. So Pat, I mean, can you describe it for us? Roxanne, just tell us, yes. set the stage. What is this show? Our friends across the pond yes. Yes. in Great Britain are purveyors of all things good taste and class. And so my wife and I were in London about five or six months ago. I was on tour and um, 
it was like 11 at night. We had just gotten back from the South Bank Center and I was tired and we, I like to watch TV as I wind down. That's my mm-hmm. thing. And I turned on a show and it said naked attraction and she had already fallen asleep just like immediately. And I was watching it and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> it's a dating show where people are naked in these little tubes and their body parts are revealed moment <laughs> by moment. <laughs> No. And then Uh the person who's choosing chooses who they want to date. And then they also undress Mm -hmm. and that, you know, it goes both ways. Like, would you like to go on a date with this person? And so it's just a dating show that's very, very dumb Mm -hmm. and there's no depth to it. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome. Yes. And yet (laughs) I I think there's depth to it. I actually do too, because the first time we, we watched it, we were like, our jaws were on the, the ground because we couldn't believe that this was allowed to be shown on TV mm-hmm. in some ways. And like how it it is a show of sheer objectification. Like they're choosing this person completely by their body, their face. Their penises. Their penises, their vulvas, yep. the whole thing, their breasts. And yet it feels like the opposite of objectification. How is in this some possible? Weird it universe. Because it's so transparent? Yes. Is that why? Something. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, huh. Roxanne Gay. I know that this, this show is batshit crazy, but I believe that if I had seen that show when I was younger, my body issues would not have been as serious. She said that right away. She goes, my image of what a body is supposed to look like mm-hmm. is completely now transformed. All I've seen on TV my entire effing life has been this Photoshop, like one sort of body Yeah. Mm-hmm. growing up. And now here are all of these bodies looking how bodies look, which I cannot believe because it turns out I haven't seen that many bodies. And it turns out she's much gayer than she originally I was like, thought. Those, oh my God. I thought that's where you're going with them had I seen it earlier. Can we go back to the tubes part? The naked people are in tubes? Yeah, they're in these pods. Yeah. Yeah. And then the 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 sort of shielding rises up. So it starts oh. with the lower half and then the torso and the breasts and then the face. And oh, so you get the face someone the is yeah. yes, and someone Ooh. is eliminated with each reveal until there are, I think, two or three people left. And then that's when the person who's making all these choices undresses so that it can a little bit go both ways. And Almost everyone who leaves the show during the confessional says that they feel so much more confident now. They all do. And that always blows my mind because mm-hmm. I cannot imagine a scenario where I would feel confident and naked. <laughs> yet these period. people are like, full stop. Just walking. No TV, no anything. Just yeah. feel confident naked, Just, period. Yeah. yeah. And, Same. you know, the range of bodies yes. and the sort of body confidence that some of these yes. people have and bodies that are perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, we have these cultural ideas around bodies. And so when you see someone whose body defies those cultural attitudes and they seem extraordinarily confident and are willing to be on this show, yes. I'm just like, bottle that shit up. Thank right you. Now. Yes. That's how I feel about it. I'm sure that people will write in and say how horrible it is and objectifying, but I'm telling you, mm. I think there's something good about it. It is. I feel like I, I, there was a part of me is, that thinks, are people in Europe just more okay with their nakedness. Well, they are because well, yeah, they so are. Obviously, you can't be less okay than we are. Yeah. 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 But I will tell you that we were on a little mini vacay with, it was Abby, me and our friend Alexandra Hedison. So three lesbians were staying in this place. 
we had an ant problem in our place. So this guy walks in to deal with the ants and naked attractions on, and there's just five penises on <laughs> the TV. And I was like, I bet they're like, not what I was expecting. It just was so cool <laughs> because know. some of the people who were choosing, you know, there's five penises across and she's just like, I prefer this one, you know? And it was like, not personal. It was just her preference. It was just like so cool. And I like the preference part too, because it really is a matter of taste because in one of the episodes I saw, the there was a, a very well-endowed fellow and the woman was like, I can't do all of that. I'm five, two. Yes. I think and, I saw that one. <laughs> you know, like the body is a finite space. Yes. So I, I thought that was hilarious because so many cultural memes around sex yes. are about like, you know, how women prefer size, mm. which many do, mm. but they are also probably taller. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know like oftentimes when my friends and I see someone who's really well endowed, we're like, where is that going? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. like, where is that going? That is just Truly, for show. Me. They, they actually have these like little snippets in between, like during the actual episodes that are like more science based. And they were like, mm-hmm. most women's vaginas are X, you know, that deep. And the parts that are really sensitive are in the more shallow places inside the vagina. And so it's like teaching you some stuff about bodies too throughout. It's just, you can learn. The whole show is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. You're a reality TV show person. I am. I okay. am. What is your take on why you like reality TV show? Adrian Marie Brown just told me this thing that blew my mind. She was trying to make me feel better about it. Mm-hmm. And she said, I think people who try really hard to be good all the time love reality TV because it's just a bunch of people just not trying to be good. It's just freedom (laughs) from being good. (laughs) Yes, that's part of the appeal for sure. And also, I just love the messiness of it all. Mm -hmm. Like people who always say what they want at exactly when they want. Now we know now, of course, it's all um, edited and orchestrated, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Give me my illusion. (laughs) And it's just like pretty people behaving badly. Yes, give me more. Or if it's competitions, yes, I want to see people race around the world. And try to win a million dollars or yes, put a bunch of fairly attractive people on a deserted Island in the South Pacific. <laughs> and let's see what happens. Hijinks ensue. I, I just love it. Mm-hmm. I love like sort of feeling like I'm on the fly of a wall and I get to see all of these conversations. I would not be ordinarily privy to. It's yeah. really a lot of fun. Good stuff. I'm fascinated by all of the paradox that you contain, Roxanne. I love this erudite critic writer and you're like, also give me the reality TV shows. I love how you talk about how you hold both this like incredible level of confidence and also struggle with self-esteem at the same Mm -hmm. time, holding both of those. Do these go together? Do you think most people have these things together? Because in my life, I've always been struggling. Like, am I, do I have an overly absurd grandiosity about myself or do mm-hmm. I have very low self-worth? And I'm like, maybe the answer is yes. <laughs> like both. <laughs> you know, I think to, to be a writer, some part of you has to have a sense of self that is outsized because 
it takes something to put work into the world, to make yourself vulnerable in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. It really does because you have no control over what people are going to do as they receive your work. Sometimes it's going to be great and you're going to feel affirmed. Sometimes you're going to be challenged in really interesting ways. And then there are people who are just evil. So to know that you have to contend with all that, it does require a sense of confidence. And at the same time, I'm a Libra, so I'm always balancing just crushingly low self-esteem. And it's like, uh, who am I? Why should anyone read what I have to say or care about whatever I care about or whatever it is? And I, I just kind of carry them both at the same time. You know, like one is weighing me down and the other is lifting me up. And that gives me some kind of equilibrium to do the work that I do. How do you decide what you're going to opinionate about? Mm. And what in the world do we do about the whole like demand that we speak about every single thing? Mm -hmm. These days, and really it's been this way for the past few years, I, I'm only going to engage critically with something if I care about it, if I'm interested, if I feel qualified. And if I feel like I have something unique to say about it, mm -hmm. I'm not going to ever really be the only person saying something because that's just not the way it works. But I do think I articulate the world in a way that no one else can. And I believe that about everyone. And so I just have to care. And it's really hard to resist the call to opine on everything and to weigh in on everything. And uh, frankly, we've seen what happens when people make statements that are not sincere that are simply responding to a demand of some kind and that can actually do more harm than good. I'm not going to speak on things I'm not an expert about, though I'm not talking about caring about atrocity or things like that, but I am talking about not speaking inexpertly where expertise is absolutely required. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're speaking up on everything, then are you really saying anything at all? Mm. I just don't think you are. And I always ask people when they ask me, you know, why haven't you said something about X, Y, or Z? I actually ask, why do you want me to? Mm. You know, what do you need from me specifically about this topic that compels you to reach out to me and ask me, like, what are you looking for? And a lot of times people are looking for validation that they are thinking the right things, that their opinions are valid. And I get that. And I think that is one of the reasons that we read uh, cultural criticism. But sometimes you have to make those decisions for yourself. You have to figure out where you stand. And then maybe you look to others to see, is there something I haven't considered? Is there something I have to add to the conversation? But this idea that we're just here to tell people how to think, I'm actually not really telling you how or what to think. I'm just telling you what I think and how I arrived at that conclusion and what you might take from all of that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of your pieces that I loved so much, Why Are People So Awful Online, <laughs> where you talk about how what what you believe drives so much of the antagonism and anger online is helplessness offline. Mm -hmm. It feels like that's another one of these paradoxes where it's like the more we're losing any efficacy offline 
is the more we feel like we need to double down and that we are actually doing a thing mm-hmm. when we say something online. And you talk about the perfectionism, like we are demanding if we if we say the perfect words, if if we make everyone else say the perfect words and we police the shit out of them if they don't, then somehow we're healing something mm-hmm. in the world. How do we get back to a lack of helplessness offline? And is our engagement online coming at the opportunity cost of actually doing real things in the real world? Because sometimes I think we have this everything is a dumpster fire. I hate it. I have to do something. So I say something and now I'm done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, are we ever going to get back to the real world? That's a good question. And I think absolutely. And I think most of us are in the real world most of the time, even when we're online. And one of the things I always try to make clear is that the internet isn't some virtual space only. It is a virtual space, but it is populated by all of us Mm -hmm. who are very real. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that when you do something hurtful online, the repercussions absolutely will bleed into our day-to-day lives. And so when I think about the helplessness that we often feel in our real lives and how powerful you can feel online for one reason or another, Um, I always wonder how can we bring more of that online feeling to our day-to-day lives while leaving behind the things that don't do any of us any good. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we need to live lives without negativity. Negativity is part of life, but there's negativity and there's toxicity. And unfortunately, social media is increasingly becoming toxic. And I think that it infects all of us if we stay there too long. Just like if you stay in a gas leak too long, you're going to die. It's not necessarily that you're going to die via social media, but I do think you'll be changed. Mm -hmm. One of life's most prevalent paradoxes that I often note is a closet full of clothes, but nothing to wear. But people who say that about their closet haven't shopped at Quince. I'll put my money on that. Quince is my, and soon to be your, go-to for high quality yet affordable luxury essentials from organic cotton to washable silk and sparkling jewelry. I am currently obsessed with all of their belt bags. Do you know this? They're the kind of bags that you can sling over the front of you, the kind that are actually like attached to a belt around your waist. And there's even like nylon ones that I've bought. They are under 30 bucks and they are really good for active wear and also hands-free. This is what I'm talking about. The new bag of the future is hands-free and they are super inexpensive at Quince. Love them. Check them out. The best part is Quince works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, which not only helps us trust the quality and origin of the pieces, but also cuts out unnecessary extra costs and allows us to bask in the savings. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash hard things for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hard things to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash hard things. 
There have been so many guests on the podcast that I wish we could have gotten more one-on-one time with. Because when you really get to sit down and have that intimate experience, you learn so much more. And that's why we love our longtime partner, Masterclass. Because where else are you going to get one-on-one time with RuPaul? Teaching you how to be your most authentic self as if among friends. And if you were as fascinated as I was after Natalie Portman joined the show, maybe you wanted to go deeper. And her acting class on Masterclass lets you do just that. With their set of 180-plus world-class instructors, you're in good hands when you decide to set out on your next learning adventure. Plus, if it's not for you, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. My favorite. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash hard things. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash hard things. Masterclass.com slash hard things. It feels to me like watching you and your work and all the different places that you do it. you've said about the internet, it's like one place we can get justice Mm -hmm. or like why you love shows like law and order. It's like one place we can get, we can see the bad person do something. And then at the end of the show, we're going to get justice or in writing, you're the master of your own destiny on the page and you're a teacher, right? I mean, I used to be a teacher and the thing I loved the most about being a teacher was that it was a little world where Mm -hmm. I got to make the rules and we were going to be kind and we were going to be, we were in this little world. I could make it just and safe. And uh-huh. do you feel like that's, that is a lot of what you're doing is trying to make worlds that are safe. And is this so disappointing with the internet because it was one of those worlds for you for a while and now it's not. Well, I don't think I ever thought the internet was safe. I will say that. Mm-hmm. I just thought there was connection to be found Mm. Mm. in circumstances where I was extraordinarily lonely. Mm -hmm. And in my writing, it's not that I'm trying to create spaces that are safe, but I am trying to create spaces where people can be themselves. Mm. And hopefully there is safety in that. Mm -hmm. And if you are feeling unsafe, that it's okay to feel unsafe because no one's going to harm you. Mm. And so it's, it's, that's what makes all of this so frustrating that that space is being taken away by bad actors. And sometimes we're the bad actors. And then you have to sit with that and and like, think, what am I doing here? If I'm behaving in this very way that I just can't stand being on the receiving end of. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard conversation to have with yourself when you realize that the space that you're trying to curate or maintain that sometimes you're the bad actor in that space. Mm. And, you know, having to take responsibility for that is very challenging. And unfortunately we also don't afford one another enough grace to do that work of taking accountability and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I found so challenging is that even when you do try to hold yourself accountable and be responsible there are always some people who are like, back in 1997, <laughs> you did this one thing. Here's a screenshot. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks. 
I was 25, (laughs) you know, um, so it's, it's challenging. And and I've been thinking a lot about this in my writing, like, how do we allow space for redemption for one another in all of these, you know, communities that we're part of? And I don't know that anyone has good answers yet. And, you know, when we talk about justice in online spaces, I think it's because like we get to all be part of the court of public opinion, Mm -hmm. but then we don't know what happens after we've rendered that verdict. Mm -hmm. And we do need to figure out some of those answers pretty quickly here. Mm. Is this part of your, I've heard you talk about recently, a creative block is all that you're navigating here as you kind of mourn, grieve, navigate what's ahead for you online, do you think what you're experiencing there is related to your creative block? Um, Partly in that as you develop an audience, like in general, for me to put my work in the world, I tell myself, oh girl, don't worry. No one's going to read it. And I, I give myself that delusion so that I can. You're still buying that from yourself it. after all this? I am still, still absolutely. Okay, that's good. Nobody can lie to me better than me. Um, But, you know, of course, it's harder and harder to maintain that delusion when you are faced with incontrovertible evidence that you do indeed have an audience. And so there's a lot of pressure and I can handle pressure. It's just that I start to get too in my own head thinking, oh, man, you know, when I publish this book, there are people going to say you forgot this and you forgot that and you forgot this other thing. You didn't account for the whole of human experience with this one book or this one essay. Um, So then I just decide, well, what's the point? Because it's just like being dismantled before I even finish building the thing. Mm -hmm. And I just that makes me just creatively completely at a standstill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've clearly written a lot over the past several years, but it's not coming the way it's supposed to, the way it normally does. And it's not that my writing process has changed. It's just, Mm. there's this overwhelming sense of foreboding, like that no matter what it is, it's not going to be good enough. And this is going to be the last book I ever write. And so I'm trying to unravel it all and just learn to quiet some of that, but it's a process. Is the question then whether it's worth it to you? Like, are you counting costs to be like, if I do X, I know that Y will happen. Is it worth it to me to do X? Sometimes, but yeah. not for writing itself. I would okay. write if there was no one ever. Re- I love writing. It's, I've always loved it. And I would do it whether or not there was an audience or interest in my work for sure. But there are times when I think like I've held back two essays in the past two weeks where I just have decided it's not worth it mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter what I do. Um, it doesn't matter what I say. It's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And knowing that. It's just like, you know, that's where the costs outweigh the benefits. And I've only done that once one other time in my career. Um, and so it, it's, you know, it's weird and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I know that once in a while we do have to protect ourselves mm-hmm. from ourselves. <laughs> and sometimes I just I'm like, yeah, no, no, thank you. And there are times when we're in better mental strength times than others. I feel like that's something that is lost often is like, you're not Mm -hmm. always ready to go into battle. Like there are times in the year where I'm like, all right, 
I've done, I don't know, I'm just in a good <laughs> place in my cycle or like, I don't know what, but I'm ready to go. But there are times you don't have the well, strength to go in. And with the internet and all of social media, it feels like it is a constant, you're in a constant battle. So mm-hmm. that's, it feels like we're always in fight or flight. Like yeah. every time I go to the, to the, all the apps, I'm just like, I, I can sense like that my blood pressure, I can sense something like I'm waiting yeah. to find something. And that is not good. It's not no, good for no. our psychological beings. It's not good for our physical beings. Yeah. And it's so funny because yeah. like as people who we've joked about needing an app where somebody just dings me every once in a while that says, no one's mad at you, Glennon. No one's mad at you. Like I have this idea that everyone's mad at me. But then I go to Twitter and I realize it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you tell yourself everything is fine. And then you go online and you're like, no. You know, um, it's funny. Earlier today, I was, someone was critiquing me online about something that they absolutely did misread. And what they interpreted from my very innocuous, very sort of table stake statement, they read it completely differently. And I was like, that's not what my intention was. And they were like, well, can you provide some examples? And I was like, I could, but, you know, why would you assume the worst of me in this circumstance where I've never done anything like that in the entirety of my career? Uh, But the truth is I was in, in an airport and I was like walking through the terminal. And so I actually didn't have time to provide a thesis on one single tweet. And people just forget that like we are human. We are living our lives away from the thing. I'm not actually sitting here glued to my phone, like engaged in a debate. I'm like doing things and then looking at my phone and then going back to doing those things. And the level of expectation sometimes that your tweet is going to be as rigorous as a book is like, it's just, again, it's so disingenuous. Mm-hmm. It's you go like, you can't be serious right now. Like when people do that, I just tend to think be for real. Yeah, Like just be for real. This cannot be real. And then we ask yeah. ourselves the question of like, I can only have the mental health to be accountable to like four people. Truly. Right. I only want to be accountable for like, the people in my house. That takes all of my time and energy. So we've created this system where we allow ourselves to feel accountable to every, somebody said to you on Twitter, show me Uh examples. Uh There's only four people in my life who can say the words to me, show me examples. (laughs) That level of accountability to the universe, to everyone is what we've set up. Yeah, this is something I'm actively working on in therapy because my therapist, who's also not online, is like, so what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what that this person you will never, ever meet, who you do not know, who you like don't owe anything to. So what that they want you to sort of like create a a bibliography for, you know, like, why are you doing this? And, And Debbie is also very good about sort of just asking me that question, like, so what? Mm-hmm. Just let them, you don't owe these people anything other than like your, what you'd put on the page. Mm-hmm. And I think women, people of color, trans people, anyone who's marginalized and lives in a visibly marginalized body is often expected to cater to mm-hmm. everyone to sort of be like the mother, the wife, the friend, the confidant, the therapist. 
Like whatever people want on demand is what we're supposed to give them. Mm -hmm. And when we don't, we have failed. And like we open ourselves up to all kinds of criticism. And it's even more frustrating when it is other marginalized people who place Mm -hmm. these expectations on you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait, we should all know better. Like, what what are you doing here? Um, it's challenging. And I struggle with like disappointing people with mm-hmm. not, you know, just because someone asks me to do something with thinking I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully someday I'll get there. So what do you think your signals your body is sending to you that say, well, I have to write that person back or else I'm what? Or to feel even the conflict of like, I'm pissed at that person for asking, Mm -hmm. but also should I write? What is that about? You know, it's it's about feeling like I'll be accused of not being good enough, of not Mm -hmm. sort of living my principles Mm -hmm. if I don't acknowledge every piece of criticism. And it's a struggle, but I'm learned trying to just recognize that, okay, so like, even if they're disappointed, even if they do think that about you, it doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It doesn't make them right. But it's so hard to believe like that they're wrong because I'm always wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm always the problem. I'm always the one who's fucking up. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see myself. And so if I'm the problem, then of course I defer to everyone else's authority because I know that inherently it must be me who did something wrong, who wasn't articulate enough, who didn't, and again, didn't account for sort of every reality that (laughs) might contradict a simple statement that was, again, you know, like 140 characters. Uh, It's just (laughs) like, it's kind of unreal. Yeah. And mine's always like, oh, this is when everyone finds out that I'm just a fraud. Yeah. Exactly. Like, this is it. The gig is up. Like, what do I think I did? Mm-hmm. I've already written about everything I've did. Like, you would think that I, I have murdered a bunch of people in my past and I'm afraid people are going to find out. Like, that is the level of fear I get when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when don't it, you think that that's, that's almost every public person's big fear? Because, like, how is it possible that me, I, this person has any kind of public platform? It feels like that's the whole setup. And and mm. all of us, mm. all of us who are in a public forum online, wherever, like we have a responsibility. Like I'm trying to figure out because so much of this stuff is out of our control, what people say back to us. But we were the we are the ones that created the space. Mm-hmm. It is our name. Now, that doesn't mean we take all the responsibility of what people say, but. We can decide whether we want to be there or not. Yeah. And we get to decide how we want to be there. And by the way, science is now brain fucking us. The technology here is like making us all lose our minds. <laughs> and A we're all bit. addicted to this thing. We're all addicted to this thing. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm more eager to think of a life post social media. There are things I'm going to miss, but increasingly, like you said, Abby, like when I open the app, my, I can feel my blood pressure rising, yeah. my chest tightening. And I'm like, if I'm having a physiological response that's unpleasant uh-huh. just by opening an app, uh-huh. it's time to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing good is going to happen there. Same exact response when I would crack my first beer. It, it feels oh. to me like the same physiological responses. I'm getting the shot of dopamine. I'm also mm-hmm. getting a shot of shame. 
like the same mm-hmm. thing is like happening because I know that I'm out of control with this hmm. thing. Interesting. That's really interesting. I think this is really related that I, but I'm just realizing it is. I have started becoming really interested in this is so random in painting. <laughs> and like, oh. I, I know I can't paint. I'm not, I'm not like a, an artist. I can't draw anything, but I think it, it's because, and I, she was asking me a lot of questions about it the other night. And I was like, I think it's because I can't get it wrong. Mm. Like mm. it's a thing I can do that feels creative and feels expressive that I can give a friend or give someone, but nobody can look at it and be like, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. They can, it'll be bad, but mm-hmm. it can't prove I'm bad. Right. <laughs> right. That's good. So I need to take up a hobby with low stakes. <laughs> yeah. Like your Maybe. puzzles. You do your puzzles, right? Yes, I do. Oh, I live for a puzzle. Aww. And also, I will say cooking is that way for me, I must say, Glennon. Like, it's absolutely the thing that I can do where it's not always going to work out. Mm-hmm. Truly, like, I'm a pretty good cook, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. I make a mistake when the recipe or like what I thought would work together does not work together. And it's fine. Like, nobody cares. And on those nights, Debbie's like, babe, because I'll like get really frustrated with myself. Like, oh, I can't believe I ruined this dish. And she's like, it's called takeout. We're fine. (laughs) (laughs) And so to also have that reassurance that even when you make a mistake with something like low stakes, it's great because the world continues to turn. Mm -hmm. And that's your little world, right? Where people Mm -hmm. aren't mad at you all the time and where you don't have to always nail it. And where you, if you make a mistake, there's grace. Just talk to us a little bit about Debbie and your puppy and your little world there. Yeah. I, you know, I met Debbie five years ago, a little more than five years ago. I was in another relationship, but I was allowed to see other people and she had been pursuing me for more than a year. And I didn't recognize that's what it was because I'm just not bright in terms of like (laughs) my emotional IQ with romance is not great. And when we finally started dating, it was just like, wow, how on earth did I meet this person at 44 years old? Mm. I had sort of given up. I was just like, this is as good as it gets. And that was very mediocre. Um, And so here comes this woman who's a Scorpio, amazing, super hot and super smart and super kind, Uh, just the best. Mm -hmm. And she like actively wants to be with me every single day. Every morning I wake up, I'm just like, huh, still here. Okay. (laughs) This is interesting, but we have a really great life together. We um, split our time between New York and L.A., Because she's a New Yorker and I'm based in LA and we have a puppy. Well, he's not a puppy anymore. He's three, but he's always going to be our puppy. His name is Max Max. and he's adorable. And I don't like animals, but she is an animal lover. Mm -hmm. She will not kill a fly. She will take it outside. Mm -hmm. And we have two cats as well, um, Theo and Lou. Mm -hmm. And they stay in New York full time. And we don't leave them alone. Because once I said that on an interview and someone was like, you leave your cats alone for months at a time? And it's like, yes, that's exactly what we do. I wish you would have just posted on Twitter. Yes, period. <laughs> Impeach that, uh, assholes. <laughs> and the thing is, if we traveled with the cats, they would be like, cats don't like to travel. Right, of course. Everyone, like, I don't know. As much as people are critical of, like, public figures on social media, they are even worse when it comes to parenting advice and pet 
parenting yes, advice. We don't Amen. say a I word. Have, I have learned not to post anything but cute pictures. <laughs> and that I learned in one day, uh, which was a very good lesson. But, you know, to have this safe space where I can be myself, where I can make mistakes, where I can have reassurance and support um, and where I can provide those things as well is just in it's incredible and every single day feels amazing and people are like the honeymoon's not over yet no it is not thank you it's awesome so I she's amazing you said sometimes you feel bad like even talking about your relationship because there's like this vibe of you're supposed to be like bitching about your partner but you said that the problem is I actually like my wife yeah I do. I, you know, I genuinely like enjoy her multiple times a week. She'll do something. She's quirky and she'll do something. And I'm like, you know what? Don't ever change. Mm. Everything about you is perfect. It just, it's like the higher power, whoever she is, went into a lab and was like, who is the perfect person for Roxanne? And this is what, like, they, she made it. And I like her. I just do, in addition to loving her very much. And Mm. so when I wrote that particular essay, I was thinking about all of the rhetoric we hear about marriage and how hard it is. And everything can be challenging when on certain days. But for the most part, it doesn't feel all that hard. And I'm like, when do we get to the hard part of marriage? (laughs) Just so I can prepare myself. You're like bracing Um, yourself like Twitter. Like, is it coming? Yes. Just like, is it coming? Is it today? I mean, of course, we've had arguments and challenges, but I think partly because we met later in life, we kind of have been through all of our dumb relationships mm-hmm. and we both are actively in therapy, which I think is a miraculous thing because we know how to, in general, talk things through once the sort of like heat of the moment passes. It's like, we it's not even that we're using ther- therapy speak, but we're able to sort of say, here's what I heard. And here's what I was feeling in that moment, just so you understand. And then I respond and also learning not to fix everything because I'm a fixer. Like when she articulates a problem, I'm like, I have four solutions for you. Like two days ago, she was like, my laptop's dying. So yesterday I went and got her a new one and then she came home and she was like, be serious. And I said, I am deadly serious. Problem solved. And so learning that I don't always have to do that is just awesome too. She's such a love. My favorite part of that essay is when you told us that she, every time Debbie sees a dog, she says doggy. And every time she sees a bird, she says birdie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was so, because she's like, she always wears all black and she's very chic and she's New York fast. Mm -hmm. So like she walks a hundred miles an hour. And so to see someone like that, who doesn't ever veer from like the course, see a dog and lose (laughs) all sort of like all coolness and just be a doggy. Like the first time she did it, I was like, I haven't met this version of you yet. This is funny. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You guys are so special. You just love it. Thank you. Okay. I'm just thinking about this whole whole past 45 minutes or 50 minutes. Do you guys feel the shift in energy from when we stop talking about the internet and we start talking about the little world? It's like you can. Yeah. The whole room lightens up. You can feel it. What if we just lived in our worlds where we were meant to live? (laughs) We might feel this way all the time. (laughs) Imagine. May I just ask where you are with, because this is something I'm personally always struggling with, is you said that you're working on developing your sense of satisfaction 
Like the mm-hmm. idea that you have done enough for this day, this week, this life. Where are you there? <laughs> I'm still at the beginning of that journey. I, I, I am. I think partly it's just the child of immigrants and that sort of striving ethos that we were raised with. When you look at my siblings and my cousins and I, like we're all really intense <laughs> about work. And, you know, someone interviewed me the other day and was like, so you, your cousin, this, your other cousin. I'm like, yes, yes. We were raised by siblings. Okay. <laughs> That's the common denominator here. Our parents are all really intense. So I'm just trying to recognize that what I do is not a reflection of my self-worth. And that is a hard lesson to learn when you have been like very ambitious your whole life and you have sort of substituted self-esteem for ambition. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just trying to recognize that it's enough. It's just enough. And I never just rest. Like I win an award and literally five minutes later after I'm notified, I'm on to the next thing. I have not enjoyed it. I haven't acknowledged it. It's just like, a blip in my day. Mm -hmm. And once I started noticing that, I was like, oh no, we're going to have to work on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. It's connected too. I think leaving Mm -hmm. these places is connected to enoughness for me because it's like, it might be where I'm losing my mind and getting it, (laughs) but it's it's also where I'm important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like if I let that go, what, I'm just going to be like a regular old Joe here on the street Will I say that's enough? That's what I want. Yeah, but your family believes and thinks that you are so important to all of us. Right, but that's the kind of enoughness that we that I want. Yeah, is like you want to feel that people in my real world. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Roxanne, you're the best. Thank you. You're the best right back. I really like you guys and appreciate. Everything you do and the energy you put into the world. Mm, Same with thank you. you. So much. Um, we'll do dinner give, again soon, and we'll yeah. Max maybe and we'll Debbie celebrate. Yes, give Max and Debbie squeezes. I will. All right. Thank you, Pod Squad. See you next time. If this podcast means something to you, it would mean so much to us if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do these three things. First, can you please follow or subscribe to We Can Do Hard Things? Following the pod helps you because you'll never miss an episode and it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. To do this, just go to the We Can Do Hard Things show page on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then just tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click on follow. This is the most important thing for the pod. While you're there, if you'd be willing to give us a five-star rating and review and share an episode you loved with a friend, we would be so grateful. We appreciate you very much. We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side. I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine. I continue to
holiday season may be at its end. Thank you, baby Jesus. But the opportunities for giving amazing life-changing gifts have just begun. And yes, diapers are a life-changing gift. Imagine your first-time parent struggling with time management and financial burdens. Don't really have to imagine. I remember it directly. And all the challenges of your first child. And then you get a huge shipment of diapers funded by all your family and friends. That's a good feeling. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's exactly what Pampers is doing with their diaper stash. I love this so much. It's an online diaper fund. So you can contribute to a diaper stockpile and help ensure it never runs out. And one of the most difficult things about buying diapers for others is making sure that you guess the right fits and sizes. And with Pampers Diaper Fund, all that guesswork goes away. So if there's a new parent or expecting parent in your life, you will be making their lives a lot easier and showing them how many people 
are excited for their huge milestone. Organizing a diaper stash is easy. Go to diaperstash.pampers.com to set up a fund and give the ultimate group gift. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. The holiday season may be at its end. Thank you, baby Jesus. But the opportunities for giving amazing life-changing gifts have just begun. And yes, diapers are a life-changing gift. Imagine your first-time parent struggling with time management and financial burdens. Don't really have to imagine. I remember it directly. And all the challenges of your first child. And then you get a huge shipment of diapers funded by all your family and friends. That's a good feeling. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's exactly what Pampers is doing with their diaper stash. I love this so much. It's an online diaper fund. So you can contribute to a diaper stockpile and help ensure it never runs out. And one of the most difficult things about buying diapers for others is making sure that you guess the right fits and sizes. And with Pampers Diaper Fund, all that guesswork goes away. So if there's a new parent or expecting parent in your life, you will be making their lives a lot easier and showing them how many people are excited for their huge milestone. Organizing a diaper stash is easy. Go to diaperstash.pampers.com to set up a fund and give the ultimate group gift. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. 